in this honorable court. First case for set for oral argument on Friday, October 23rd, 2020, is case number 20-6011, N. Ray Philip C. DeVrice, etc. et al., Iowa Department of Revenue versus Philip C. DeVrice et al. Mr. Gray and Mr. Piper, this is Judge Shermer. I'd like to introduce to you my colleagues uh, from the from the District of South Dakota's Judge Nail, from the Western District of Missouri's Judge Dow. Mr. Gray, if you'd like to start, please. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, good morning. May it please the court. My name is Brandon Gray, and I represent the Iowa Department of Revenue. In this case, the debtors assert that Section 1232 of the Bankruptcy Code contains an unprecedented right to force taxing authorities to disgorge non-preference pre-petition payments. That treatment would put taxing authorities in a position worse than any other creditor under any other chapter of the Bankruptcy Code. Now, it's important to note that we concede in this case that 100% of the more than $77,000 tax claim that the state of Iowa has in this case should be treated as a general unsecured claim and qualifies for discharge under Section 1232. However, the debtors ask for something further than that. They argue that Section 1232 contains the authority to reach directly into the state treasury and require a refund of pre-petition off-farm withholdings to pay the debtor's attorney's fees. Uh, this morning, I'd like to talk about three things. First, I'd like to talk about how the plain language of Section 1232 doesn't support this unprecedented right. Second, we'll talk about how the rest of the bankruptcy code would prevent it. And third, we'll talk about how this was not the intended result. And I think first, it's important that we look at Supreme Court precedent on Chapter 12, and that's found in the Hall versus United States case. Uh, in 2012, the Supreme Court said specifically when addressing Chapter 12, now a, a different issue than what faces us today, but the same section of Chapter 12, uh, the court stated directly that the courts cannot rewrite the statutory language based on some argument that doing so would serve the, some underlying purpose. The plain language of the code as defined uh, based on the rest of the bankruptcy code is, is what matters in interpretation. Uh, so first it's important that we look at what, what is the plain language of <coughs> Section 1232. Uh, Section 1232 states that any unsecured claim of a government unit that arises as a result of the sale or disposition of property used in the debtor's farm operation uh, gets four different tr treatments. First, it's treated as a pre-petition unsecured claim. Two, it's not entitled to priority. Three, it must be provided for under the plan. And four, it's qualified for discharge under Section 1228. The Knudsen Eighth Circuit case says specifically that this provision is a priority stripping provision and not a taxing provision. There's no mention in any of the language of Section 1232 about compelling a refund. Uh, so first, in interpreting the plain language, it's important to look at those first three words. Section 1232 treats 
an unsecured claim of a government unit. Uh, so what's a claim? Claim is a common bankruptcy term that's used throughout the code. Uh, and first, it's important to look at Section 502B, which states that the amount of a creditor's claim is determined on the petition date. The claim does not include payments or credits that were applied to the claim or to the amount due long before the case arose. Uh, and I think it's, it's important to look at a real-world example when considering that. If a farm debtor owed a credit card company, for example, and had made payments pre-petition on the credit card claim but still owed a balance on the date of the petition, it's undisputed that the amount of the credit card company's claim would be the amount owed on the petition date. Uh, there's no dispute, there would never be a dispute, that the claim amount includes amounts that were paid months before the petition was filed in the first place. But the debtors in this case point to additional language to, ar to argue that that's where this refund right is, is found. And, and they point specifically to, to 1232A4, which talks about discharge. But again, discharge is a common bankruptcy term that's, that's used in other sections of the, of the code. And it's, it's claims that are discharged, not pre-petition liabilities that have been paid long before the petition date. And, and again, uh, we go back to the credit card company example. Certainly, that credit card debt, if, assuming it's unsecured, uh, would be qualified for discharge at the end of the Chapter 12 bankruptcy under Section 1228. But there's, there's no dispute that the credit card company would have to cough up money that was paid on the credit card bill four, five, six, seven, eight months before the bankruptcy was filed in the first place. The effect of discharge is not to compel a refund of pre-petition payments. Um, and again, there's nothing in the plain language of Section 1232 that indicates that claim or discharge should be defined differently um, then they're defined throughout the code. Mr. Gray, this is Judge Shermer. Is it the department's position that the sum, the, the refund amount was set off pre-petition, or is that not part of your argument? That's not our position, Judge Shermer. Our, our position is that the Section 553 set-off does not come into play here because there was no refund to begin with. Uh, the pro forma return is not a tax return. It does, and the determination of whether a refund is due is determined under state law. And under applicable state law, the debtor was not entitled to a refund in this case. Uh, that having been said, certainly 553 provides a clear indication that if there was a refund provision uh, to be found in Section 1232, uh, that potentially the ability to set off that refund would be preserved by Section 553 unless Section 1232 specifically said that Section 553 did not apply. So um, while our position is Section 553 is not at play here, if, if you think otherwise and think that Section 1232 contains a refund right, we think we're saved by Section 553. Uh, and those kind of conflicts, I guess, bring me to the next point, which 
an interpretation that Section 1232 compels a refund uh, brings in conflicts with several other provisions of the Bankruptcy Code, uh, including Section 553. Uh, And first, Section 1232 specifically addresses at least five named sections of the Bankruptcy Code um, that Section 1232 treatment supersedes. Sections that it doesn't mention are Section 553, which we've already discussed. Probably more relevantly to this case, Section 505, which addresses refund determination and specifically states that the bankruptcy court cannot compel a refund unless the debtor has first requested, made a proper request of that refund from the appropriate state taxing authority. And even then, I think it's important to note that under Section 505, the bankruptcy court's determination of whether a refund is due is done applying applicable state tax law, which, again, in this case, the applicable state tax law would not entitle the debtor to a refund. Um, There's no other provision in 505 or otherwise that allows the bankruptcy courts to impose some federal standard of tax law that supersedes the amount, the liability due or the refund entitlement as determined by state law. Um, and just to, just to tie up the loose end, the statute that I've been referring to under Iowa law that determines whether a refund is due is Iowa Code Section 422.73 uh, and only allows a refund if there's been an overpayment. And again, there's not been an overpayment in this case. As we discussed earlier, there's a $77,000 bill that's owed uh, on this tax liability. Another section that I'd like to discuss is Section 1225A4. And I think first it's important to note uh, that while the debtors may argue that Section 1232 somehow is more specific than or supersedes some of these other provisions of code, Section 1232B uh, specifically contemplates that this Section 1225A4 analysis survives, even if a claim is stripped of its priority under Section 1232. Uh, And Section 1225A4 states that uh, a plan cannot be confirmed if it provides a, a creditor worse treatment than the creditor would receive under uh, Chapter 7 liquidation. Uh, there's no dispute that Chapter 7 includes some sort of compelled refund authority, and so indisputably in this case, uh, the taxing authority, the Iowa Department of Revenue, would be treated worse than it would under a Chapter 7 uh, plan, where it, in Chapter 7, the Department of Revenue may receive nothing on its general unsecured claim. In this case, the plan would provide uh, the Department of Revenue worse than nothing, potentially. The Department of Revenue is paying a refund uh, that otherwise would not be provided for uh, under any other provision of the code. Uh, and, and just to tie a bow on that, the, the debtors in their brief before this court argue that that Section 1225 argument was not preserved for review. I, I would point them to page 7 of our brief before the bankruptcy code below where uh, that argument specifically made. Um, also, in, in addressing intent, I think it's important to look at what the specific outcome uh, would be. And, Ex- and Excuse me, Mr. Outcome. Gray. 
You have four minutes left. Thank you. Uh, the outcome in this case would lead to pretty unprecedented results. Um, you know, the only, there's nothing uh, in Section 1232 that would prevent, if, if it's read to include this forced refund right and claim is read in a way to include pre-petition payments, that would prevent farm debtors from requesting uh, 1232 treatment and therefore refunds of taxes that have been paid years before the petition date. In this case, it was a 2017 tax liability, but there's, there's nothing that would prevent them from uh, seeking a refund of payments made for their 2016, 15, 14 tax liabilities. Um, Mr. Gray, this is Judge Schirmer again. I didn't see in your brief uh, what you thought the standard of review is in this case. Yeah, so the, the standard of review, um, I think, is addressed early in our brief, but, and I, I will uh, see if I can track down the specific page for you. What, what we would, uh, the standard of review here, because there are no factual disputes, the facts were all based on stipulation, um, you're reviewing the bankruptcy court's decision uh, four errors at law, which is essentially a de novo new review. There, there's no factual disputes here. I just close by saying that the purpose of the, of the statute is shown in its plain language and does not include this forced refund right proposed by the debtor. And for that reason, we'd ask that you re reverse and save the remainder of our time for rebuttal. Thank you. Okay, and Mr. Pfeiffer? May it please the court. My name is Joseph Pfeiffer, and I'm the attorney for Philip and Angie DeVries. Section 1232 is designed to deprioritize all governmental claims, including taxes occasioned by the disposition of farm assets. Please refer to the appellant's brief at page 13, and you will find that he skipped significant portions of section 1232A. He skipped the part that says it's an unsecured claim of a governmental unit against the debtor or the estate, and he put in the words that arises. Then he skipped the words before the filing of the petition or that arises after the filing of the petition and before the debtor's discharge under Section 1228. It's important to note that the decision you reach today will impact debtors not only who have a pre-petition claim, uh, who may owe pre-petition claims to governmental units, as in this case, but also post-petition claims that can uh, arise from the sale of assets in the year of filing the bankruptcy case or after filing the bankruptcy case, perhaps in a year later in a liquidation, partial liquidation plan. The department's characterization of this issue uh, renders the effect of this law a nullity when 
the overpayment is kept by the department. It does go. Excuse me, Mr. Piper, this is Judge Dow. How can you say that in a case like this in which the debtors are receiving a very significant benefit from having more than $75,000 of the taxing authority's claim deprioritized and in the process the debtors lose a mere $2,000 of a refund they might hypothetically have gotten? Your Honor, in looking at uh, the stipulation that included the amended tax returns, page 55 of document 80, line 58, showed tax due of $85,216, and the pro forma return showed that same line as tax to be zero. And that is on page 72 of document 80. The department is ending up getting, retaining this, and it's different for other, assume another farmer who had not had off-farm earnings or had increased the amount of their exemption such that nothing was withheld, that farmer with everything else being the same on their returns, would have kept that 2000 bucks. So it, uh, it, I appreciate the fact that my clients are getting a significant uh, advantage or discharge of debtedness. However, they're not getting everything that I believe Congress intended in Section 1232. Well, it seemed to me what Congress intended was that the government not have a veto power over the reorganization proceeding, and they certainly don't in this case, and that the debtors receive a significant benefit in terms of deprioritization of a substantial portion of the tax, which also is happening in this case. So how is it that the legislative purposes are not, in fact, being realized in this case? If the legislative purpose is limited to deprioritization, my clients clearly are getting a lot of tax deprioritized. I believe that all of the tax that was occasioned by the sale of the assets should be deprioritized, and that would be an additional $2,006. It's interesting to note that on the date that uh, the Department of Revenue filed its brief. The court in Indiana, Judge Robin Moberly, uh, handed down a ruling in the Richards case, 2020 Westlaw 494-7688. And in the Richards case, post-petition sales had occurred and significant money had been paid into the IRS, and more money was paid in than the amount of the priority claim as shown on the Richards pro forma return. And Judge Moberly ordered a refund at that time. Uh, it, she did that finding that the application of Section 1232 qualified taxes, that's that refund, 
favored their general unsecured claim over those of other creditors in the class. And it followed Judge Collins in holding that the Section 1232 was more specific and governed the more general statute 553. The pro forma return deals with two things. It's an analytical tool that determines the amount of tax that is entitled to priority treatment, as well as the amount of tax that can be discharged when it's treated as an unsecured claim under Section 1232. In the completion of a pro forma return, the debtor provides the court and the Department of Revenue its statement of the amount of priority taxes to which the department is entitled to be paid. By subtracting this amount from the taxes shown on the traditional return, the amount of taxes subject to deprioritization is determined. In this case, the initial return or the amended return shown on page 55 of document 80 was $85,216. And the amount of tax shown on the pro forma was zero. Line 58 is shown on page 72. So the amount of tax to be deprioritized would have been $83,210, not uh, $2,006 less than that. So it is the position of the debris that in order to fulfill and treat them like other debtors who might have not paid a dime in, that they uh, should be entitled to this refund. We do not believe that Section uh, 1225A4 uh, is applicable in this case. And we shouldn't have disparate treatment for debtors, similarly situated debtors, one who has withholdings and makes estimated payments and one that does not. Something else that is interesting in here, the department states that the nothing in Section 1232 says anything about how the taxes or how a refund being allowed or preserved. If you go back to the predecessor, 1232, 1222A2A, that was a subject of the Eighth Circuit decision in Knudsen and the Supreme Court decision in Hall, nothing in that section or section 1232 talks about how you would determine the amount of the tax to be deprioritized. The Eighth Circuit adopted a marginal methodology, and if I understand the argument of the department, since it doesn't say anything about it, how would a court ever determine what should have happened in Knutson when Congress was silent and had no legislative history on how to calculate that? Just because the statute doesn't specifically say how to do something or what will occur, we 
judges have to look at things and make a decision. But Collins made the decision that Section 1232 was more specific, and it governed over the more general statute, Section 553. Excuse me, Mr. Pfeiffer, you have five minutes left. Thank you. It is important for this court to consider the impact this decision will have on cases involving both pre-petition claims and post-petition claims. Also important for this court to realize that the claim of a governmental unit is not limited to tax claims. Claim of a governmental unit could arise in a conservation reserve program case where a farmer had pledged to keep a, a field or a farm in the conservation reserve program. But if he fails to do so, that there can be a claim against that farmer. Excuse, excuse me, Mr. Pfeiffer, this is Judge Dalgan. How can that be true? How would such a claim be a result of the sale, transfer, exchange, or other disposition of any property used in the debtor's farming operation? And that's what 1232A is limited to. Well, let me help you out there, Your Honor. Uh, if a farmer sells a farm and the purchaser chooses not to keep the farm in uh, CRP, as happened frequently in the early teens when price of corn was 7 and $8 a bushel. A lot of farms, farmers broke out of their CRP contracts figuring they could make a lot of money. The damage claim of the government, FSA, in that instance, is all of the payments that have been made to the farmer up to the date that the farm fails to continue to be enrolled in CRP. So, the farmer sells the farm, the new and the new farmer chooses not to keep it in CRP. The damage claim due to the sale and the purchaser not agreeing to keep it in CRP falls back to the debtor. Would it be a priority, would it be a priority claim? I don't, I don't know if it would be a priority claim, Your Honor. Well, if it wouldn't be a priority claim, then it's not relevant to this analysis, is it? Because the statute deprioritizes priority claims. I do not know if it would be priority, Your Honor. All right, thank you. I believe it is appropriate for this court to enter an order affirming Judge Collins' uh, judgment in this case, ordering the Iowa Department of Revenue to pay the refund that is set forth in the plan. Section 1232 controls and we now have two bankruptcy judges that believe it is appropriate for uh, refunds to be issued in cases of this type. Thank you, Mr. Piper. The Apple East rest.
mua chuẩn bị sạch Okay, would the court like to hear the rebuttal now? Yes, please. Okay. Mr. Mr. Gray? Mr. Gray, you have two minutes and four seconds left. Thank you. Uh, just briefly, and then I welcome any questions. First, I, I would comment that in Mr. Piper's argument, I, I did not hear reference to alternative definitions of claim or discharge, the plain language used in Section 1232. This is not a case where the, where the language of the statute is silent. Uh, Section 1232 is pretty clear on what it applies to and what it does. Uh, and there's, there's no reference, there's no reason why a compelled refund would be contained in that language. I would also note that our argument and the facts of this case are specific to pre-petition non-preference payments. Uh, while the facts are, of the Richards case are, are different than that, and, and certainly there are, there are additional questions that may come before um, the three of you and certainly other bankruptcy courts on post-petition payments, those aren't the facts of this case, um, and, and you know, we don't need you to issue a decision that applies to both pre-petition and post-petition payments. There are certainly reasons why those may be treated differently. Mr. Gray, this is Judge Galligan. Um, you're familiar with Richards, I assume. Um, is it, does it provide additional support for Judge Collins holding, or is it distinguishable in some way, in your view? No, it, it's actually quite distinguishable, I think, Your Honor. Um, you know, one, I think, important factor is that is a post-petition liability. The, the payments that would have generated an overpayment in that case uh, would have been payments that, you know, or, or money that potentially belonged to the estate. Uh, the other note that I would make about Richards is uh, the Richards court isn't writing on a plain slate. Uh, the IRS did not object to the plan language in that case, and so the governing plan language actually is driving much of the court's decision and not uh, you know, the, the language of Section 1232. Um, so I, I think there are very important differences between this case and Richards. Um, and I, I don't think you're asked to decide them both today. Okay, Mr. Uh, Gray, your time is up. Thank you, uh, Your Honors. Thanks for uh, hearing from us this morning. We would ask that you reverse the decision below. Thank you, Mr. Gray. Thank you, Mr. Pfeiffer.